Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this evening's virtual book club. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the National Humanities Center, and your host for tonight's event, the final installment in our three-part series on the struggle to realize our founder's vision of a country dedicated to the proposition that all are created equal. Our guest this evening is Andrew Delbanco, who is currently Alexander Hamilton Professor of American Studies at Columbia University. He is also president of the Teagle Foundation, and he's emeritus trustee of the National Humanities Center. Professor Delbanco is one of our nation's preeminent scholars of American history, literature, and culture, whose work has earned him widespread recognition, including being named America's best social critic by Time Magazine in 2001, and being awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama in 2012. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Philosophical Society. And in 2020, he was elected Vice President of the Society of American Historians. Professor Tobanko is the author of nine books and the editor of four more. And this evening, we've asked him to talk with us about his most recent book, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War, which was named a New York Times notable book when it appeared in 2018, and has since been awarded the Addisfield Wolf Prize for, quote, books that have made important contributions to our understanding of racism and university, uh, human diversity. Also the Lionel Trilling Award and the Mark Linton His History Prize for a work of history, quote, on any subject that best combines intellectual or scholarly distinction with felicity of expression. Please join me in welcoming the ever scholarly and the always felicitous Professor Andrew Delbanco. Uh, thank you, Robert, for those <clears throat> kind words. And uh, thank you, everyone out there who is joining us this evening. Um, like everybody else, I'm getting used to Zoom. Uh, six months ago, I thought Zoom was the sound that a motorcycle made when it uh, went running, rushing down the street. But we all know better than that now. 
uh, still, I'm not quite used to the idea of speaking to an audience that I can't see. So I will do my best uh, to make this evening sound something more than a monologue in which I'm talking to myself. Um, so um, it takes a long time to write a book, some books longer than others. Um, if I try to figure out how long I worked on this book, it's hard to say, 20 years or so, if I think of it in terms of reading and, and thinking about the issues that it broaches, uh, maybe five years uh, in the writing. But however I measure it, um, I certainly had no idea when I was writing this book what the world would be like when the book arrived. Um, it arrived in 2018, middle of the Trump presidency, which nobody would have predicted even a year or so earlier than that. Uh, and since then, as I hardly need to tell you, we are experiencing a worldwide pandemic, a major economic contraction. And uh, perhaps most pertinent to my subject, what is often called a crisis in race relations in our country. I actually think that's probably not the best way to describe it. I think it's more like a belated recognition of a crisis in race relations that we have had for 400 years. Um, now, um, as all of this was gathering to descend upon us, I found myself writing a book on the subject of slavery. And I, I feel an obligation to say a word about what it means to undertake such a book um, in this context or indeed in, in any context. Um, this is a subject that no one alive today can really know anything about in the sense of having actually experienced it. We can and should, I think, exert our imagination as much as possible to try to conceive of the experience of being an enslaved person. But I think that process ought to begin with an acknowledgement that we could never really get there in our mental travels. Nevertheless, there are important reasons I think that we ought to try. And it's one of the uh, positive and optimistic things about American history writing that in the last 20, 30, 40, indeed 50 years, uh, this subject which had been swept under the rug and which was possible to study and speak about American history with barely a glance toward it has been moved to where it belongs, namely at the center of our national story. Um, the powerful writer Ta-Nehisi Coates has, I heard him say once, you know, uh, we used to think of slavery as a bump in the road. Now we know that slavery was the road. And I'm one of those, belong to the baby boomer, boomer generation who had to educate myself with the help of a lot of really good historians into um, the centrality of slavery to the American experience, not just the African-American experience, but the American experience. So you recognize the inescapability of the subject and you also recognize, or should I think at the same time, 
how impossible it is to write about. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, a person who has enjoyed good health all their life trying to write about the experience of deadly illness. Or a person uh, writing about combat uh, for whom the closest experience with war has been watching a few war movies on the flat screen TV in one's living room. Um, it's an impossible thing to do, but again, I think there are several significant reasons why we must try to do it. When I was reading for this book, I came upon this remark by um, uh, a figure many of you will have heard of, William Wells Brown, one of the brave people who escaped from slavery in the, in the first half of the 19th century and was speaking to an abolitionist group in New England in the 1840s and knowing that they wanted to hear from him all about his experience as a slave said to them, I would whisper to you of slavery. Slavery cannot be represented. Slavery can never be represented. And after saying that, he went ahead and tried his best to represent it, which he had a lot more authority to do than any of us could possibly have because he had actually experienced it. Okay, so by way of, of preliminary, I wanted, to, I wanted to say those things and to indicate what should be obvious from the title of the book. And I hope some of you maybe have actually read it or read in it that my way of coming at the subject was to come at it through the experience of those who tried to escape from it, which is a very important part of the American story. And although many good books have been written about individual fugitives from slavery and, and, and books about the politics of the fugitive slavery problem it did seem to me, and it still seems to me, that the phenomenon of human beings risking everything, that is risking the little that their slave masters allowed them still to possess, uh, what, an, what a significant role they have played in our history, a role that I think we're still, we're still be, only beginning to come, come to terms with. Now, if one undertakes to write a book about people who took the risk of seeking to escape from slavery. First thing one has to decide, I guess this is maybe the first thing one has to decide in telling any story is where to begin, where to begin the narrative. And uh, one, one could have begun this story at any number of different uh, temporal points. It could begin on the uh, west coast of Africa in the uh, 15th or 16th century when European slave traders uh, arrived and, and arranged for uh, human beings to be kidnapped from the interior of the continent and brought forcibly to the coast in order to be loaded onto ships and taken to the new world. Um, they understood immediately that um, they would be contending with the universal a disposition of all human beings to be free. So for the recalcitrant victims of the kidnapping, they, they equipped them with neck halters 
metal neck halters that would uh, catch on the underbrush if 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 any of the if a captive attempted to flee inland um, to try to return to the home from which they had been ripped away. Or I could have begun the story in South Carolina in the late 17th century when the first act to prevent runaways was passed by the uh, local legislature. Or I could have begun a hundred years later in the waning years of British colonial rule when officials favored draining the wetlands in order to prevent, and this is the language of the statute, deserting slaves and wild beasts from finding shelter in the swamps. All of these legal interventions, physical interventions, as I've already indicated, were evidence that no matter what white people said about um, the suitability for black people to be enslaved or how slavery was good for black people, it's worthwhile to pause for a moment to remember that all the way up to the Civil War, you had serious intellectual arguments that slavery was not just good for slave owners, that it, but it was good for slaves. And I won't go into the rationalizations and the tormented reasoning that went into those arguments. Abraham Lincoln, who was pretty good at cutting through nonsense, uh, said on more than one occasion about that argument, if slavery is good, it's a very peculiar kind of goodness because it's a goodness that no man has ever wanted for himself. So the slave owners knew this, the slave traders knew this, everybody knew it. And uh, a large part of the story of, uh, of American history is the, is the story of the conflict between the proposition that slavery was reasonable and humane and appropriate and natural and the reality that uh, no human being wishes to uh, surrender their freedom to another human being. So where I chose to begin the story my, myself, although I acknowledge these earlier manifestations of the problem, uh, is really at the outset of what we call the United States. That is the founding of the Republic. And I look in the book with some care at the founding documents, the Declaration and, and the Constitution. Um, and it became clear to me, and it's probably clear to many of you without having read this book, because there are many other good books on this subject, that when the founders, as we now call them, came to Philadelphia in 1787, they knew that they were essentially representing two countries. They came there with the project of creating one nation, but they were representing two countries. There were many points in common between the two, and I'll speak in the course of the next half hour a little bit more about how slavery should not be mistaken for being a Southern institution. Slavery was a national institution from day one. But nevertheless, by the late 18th century, in one section of the country, uh, slavery was the bedrock of the culture, the economy, every aspect of everyday life. And the population of enslaved persons was very significant uh, as a proportion of the overall population. In the other part of the country, slavery was increasingly marginal and quite evidently 
en route to extinction. It was already clear that in the, in, in the, in the northern colonies, uh, and this is not to say that you had virtuous people in the north and wicked people in the south, but for reasons of geography and climate and economic organization, slavery um, as a local institution was much less significant and was becoming ever less significant in the North and by act of legislatures and, and uh, ju judicial authority was en route to uh, becoming uh, a thing of the past. So when the founders came to Philadelphia in 1787, they realized that uh, they were gonna have to find some way to accommodate these two uh, halves of the country they were trying to create. James Madison, arguably the chief architect of the constitution put it uh, succinctly. He said, the laws of the several states were uncharitable to one another. The laws were uncharitable to one another. Uh, by which he meant specifically in some states, human servitude was legal and in other states it was either already illegal or um, en route to becoming illegal. So they had to make many compromises uh, and I don't have time or indeed expertise to go into uh, the intricacies of the, of the framing of the constitution. But one of the issues that they knew they had to deal with was the question of if we're going to put this these two countries together, what will be the status of a human being who is considered to be property in one state? If that human being moves either voluntarily or because his or her putative owner takes her or him to another state, what will the status of that person be if they are in a state where slavery is not recognized as a legal condition uh, in which human beings can be held. Um, this is a, a, as a purely legal problem, there are some analogies in our own time. I mean, those of us who weren't born literally yesterday can remember that it wasn't that long ago where in some states, two persons of the same sex uh, could be legally married and in other states they could not. So the question arises, what would be the status of their union if they move from one state to another? As a purely legal matter, there's a parallel there uh, with the question of the status of an enslaved person uh, in the late 18th century and what the founders hoped would become the United States. So in order to address this particular problem, they introduced into the constitution what I call a kind of intranational extradition treaty. That is a provision that would ensure that an enslaved person uh, could not achieve liberty by removing him or herself from the state where he was enslaved to a state where slavery was not recognized. And this was formalized as Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3 of the United States Constitution which is still in the constitution for reasons that we could maybe discuss during the Q&A if you like, in which the founding fathers wrote, and I quote, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party 
to whom such service or labor may be due. Now, these guys were pretty good writers and had a strong command of the English language. So we might pause for just a moment and you know, put on my English teacher hat and, and say what I would say to a student if they submitted a sentence like that. I would say, so how come you're using the passive voice? You know, active voice is better, makes the sentence stronger. Shall be discharged, shall be delivered up. The answer of course is because they had no idea who was going to be doing the delivering up. That is, if an enslaved person, a person enslaved in Georgia or South Carolina or Virginia made his way to Massachusetts or, or New Hampshire, uh, who exactly was under constitutional obligation to send that person back upon claim by the putative owner? Was it the local police department, of which there wouldn't really been one? Was it the state militia? Was it the federal government, which was a very weak and almost abstract entity at that point in our history? Um, they had no idea who was going to be doing the delivering up. So this was, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, deferring the problem, papering over the problem with uh, verbiage that Southern slave owners hoped would, would be meaningful and um, uh, Northerners sort of allowed as a concession in the Constitution that they mostly didn't take very seriously. Now, um, you, you all will recall, of course, that the Constitution achieved no force until and unless it was ratified by the, by the, by the states. So um, Southerners were very committed to this, this clause, not all of them. Some suspected it wouldn't amount to much. But some were very committed to this clause because they needed it to take back to their constituents to say, look, the Constitution now embodies a guarantee of our human property, of the security of our human property. Uh, Charles Pinckney, one of the representatives from South Carolina, went back to Charleston um, and uh, as a grim reminder of how intric intricately connected our present is with our past. Uh, when I use the name Pinckney, I'm sure many of you will remember the horrific event in Charleston in 2015 when the Reverend Clementa Pinckney was murdered in his church along with several of his parishioners by a white supremacist, um, very possibly a descendant of the Charles Pinckney about whom I'm speaking right now. So Pinckney went back to Charleston and said, um, essentially what I just paraphrased, um, you should sign on to this constitution because it guarantees the security of our, uh, of our property. We have more security in it now than we had before when we were a loose confederation. Turns out he spoke too soon. Uh, the clause proved for the reasons I've already suggested to be un unenforceable. Uh, and just to leap over several decades of complex history, um, one could say that as the as the as the border between the slave states and the 
increasing number of free states became longer, it, it became more porous, right? So the issue was, uh, the issue at the end of the 18th century may have been a slave who uh, sought to escape by crossing the border between Virginia and Pennsylvania. Decades later, you, you had a problem between Kentucky and Ohio, and so on and so forth. So the, so the, the border patrol, policing the border, securing the border, to use uh, terminology that we've heard in our own politics in the last few years as we uh, struggle to understand how we should think about our, our border uh, with Mexico, uh, proved to be a very significant challenge. Um, and it became more and more of a challenge because um, Northern states for their part uh, passed in the course of the uh, first half of the 19th century an increasing number of what became known as personal liberty laws, making it more and more difficult for Southerners to retrieve their property uh, through the legal system. Uh, a version of a tried and true methodology, uh, which is try to tie them up in court make it expensive for them to litigate if they want to get an, a fugitive back, um, make them bring multiple witnesses who can ident identify the uh, putative fugitive. Uh, and it had the effect uh, in many cases of discouraging slave owners from making the effort to retrieve uh, human beings who had made their way from, from slavery to freedom. Uh, Southerners, for their part, sent bounty hunters, uh, paid agents to go north, uh, who not only uh, targeted in, uh, particular individuals who had been identified as escaped, but who randomly picked up uh, uh, black people from the, from the city street or from the country road. Somebody who, uh, a, 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 a young woman who uh, looked like she would be attractive in the marketplace or a strapping young man who looked like he would be a, a good uh, uh, farmhand and uh, uh, forcibly uh, brought them back uh, by kidnapping to the South uh, where they would be sold into slavery. So this tension between uh, free states and slave states became more and more uh, incensed uh, and intense as the, as the uh, as the century wore on, um, the fundamental problem of what the laws of what one state owed to those of another was there from the beginning. One of the stories that brought it home, made it clear to me is um, of uh, another South Carolinian who was a signatory of the constitution, Pierce Butler was in the city of Philadelphia in 1780. Pennsylvania was among the earliest to pass personal liberty laws. And they had passed a law as early as 1780 that any uh, putatively enslaved person who was in residence in Pennsylvania for six months uh, was uh, by virtue of his residency, no longer a slave. So members of the, of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society showed up one day at Pierce Butler's uh, house in Philly knocked on the door more or less and said, good morning, Mr. Butler, it's come to our attention that you have been detaining in your house a young man whom you claim to be your property. Well, we're here to tell you 
that by the laws of Pennsylvania, he's free. To which uh, Butler replied, I'm a citizen of South Carolina. What have the laws of Pennsylvania got to do with me? Crystallizing right there in that response, a problem that this fledgling nation was grappling with. Uh, the problem of comity, as it is sometimes called. What do the citizens of one state owe in a legal sense to the citizens of another? Now, as the struggle between slavery and freedom intensified um, and the abolitionist movement began to take shape and gather steam, it became clear that among the, the most powerful um, uh, persuasive uh, weapons, instruments, I don't like using those inanimate terms to describe human beings, but I think you'll take my point. Um, the, most, the most powerful witnesses to the meaning of slavery would be fugitives themselves. So beginning in the 1830s and accelerating in the 1840s, um, human beings who had experienced slavery began to speak out in public to Northern audiences as part of the abolitionist effort to convey to Northerners what the reality of slavery really was, to people for whom slavery was a faraway abstraction most of the time. And you saw the rise of vigilance committees, that is, or organized groups of citizens who appointed themselves to look out for fugitives, to aid them, to uh, supply them to help them move further north, sometimes all the way to Canada, and to uh, look out for the presence in the neighborhood of uh, agents or kidnappers appointed by, by slave, slave owners. Um, and you have the rise of what has come to be known as the Underground Railroad, that is a loosely organized, uh, loosely organized groups of people, black and white, working together to provide um, escape route for uh, fugitives from slavery. What the abolitionist movement discovered in the 1840s, I think, and, and, and the most famous figure in this story is, of course, Frederick Douglass, who was a magnetic and uh, speaker on the, on, the, on, the, on the public circuit and then published in 1845 the first version of his, of his memoir in which he he wrote about the experience of having been enslaved. What they discovered was something I think like what Dr. King discovered in the 1950s, though he of course had the advantage of the new technology of television. If you put the image of this evil in front of people in the form of a living, breathing, eloquent uh, human being, it became harder for people to turn their eyes away and so fugitive slaves, most famously Douglas, but many other examples, um, carried the crusade against slavery uh, with them into the North. Now, again, skipping over a lot of complicated history, the country continued its westward, westward expansion. The balance of slave states and free states seemed to be threatening to, uh, to disintegrate in, in the United States Senate. And in 1850, the Congress was looking at a situation where threats of secession from slave states were being taken seriously. That is, there were 
more and more arguments coming from the South that, you know, staying in the Union is a bad idea for those of us dependent on the slave-based economy, and we should get out. So in 1850, uh, there came to pass what has come to be known as the Compromise of 1850, which was a complex, multi-layered piece of legislation that embodied a, a, a number of compromises. For example, that the slave trade would be uh, uh, banished from the District of Columbia, right? Until, until that time, senators and congressmen going to the Capitol walked past pens containing human beings being prepared for auction. They could hear the cries of human beings who had been torn away from their families uh, and uh, were about to be sold somewhere into the deep south as they went and made a speech about the liberty and glory of the United States. So, so the slave trade in the Compromise of 1850 was, was banished. But slavery itself was not rendered illegal in the District of Columbia. One example of a compromise within the compromise. So a key element of that compromise, which some Southerners demanded as the essential element, the linchpin of the whole deal, was a, a newly invigorated, serious fugitive slave law that would put teeth into that toothless clause of the Constitution that had proven so difficult to enforce for the better part of half a century. Uh, and this was a merciless, I think we would all agree, morally indefensible, odious law. It declared that an accused fugitive had no right to trial by jury, no right to the basic, the most basic right in Anglo-American jurisprudence that is the right of habeas corpus, the right to be confronted in open court uh, with his accuser and with the charge to which he would have an opportunity to answer. It contained a provision that stated that to interfere with um, the return of a fugitive to his quote unquote rightful owner was a federal crime. It didn't quite create, but it uh, enlarged a category of of officers, federal officers called commissioners who were empowered to uh, return fugitives to slavery without anything resembling due process. And the purpose of this law was to hold the country together. The presumption of those who signed onto it, and, and they included quite a number of people who found slavery itself to be an odious institution, was that this law was constitutional, and it was a requirement to prevent the country from splitting apart. I had an eminent colleague at Columbia, uh, Robert Merton of our sociology department who coined the well-known well -known phrase, the law of unintended consequences. So if there was ever a law of unintended consequences, uh, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 was it it had exactly the opposite effect. It came as Ralph Waldo Emerson, arguably the leading intellectual of New England or maybe the whole North put it, and Emerson had been rather slow to fully embrace the abolitionist cause. 
it, it came as a sheet of lightning at midnight. A sheet of lightning at midnight, which the metaphor requires us, I think, to ask. So uh, what did it illuminate? What did this lightning illuminate? What it illuminated was that slavery was not a faraway problem. Slavery was not an institution that belonged to the South. Slavery was a real and near thing. This had always been true. Anybody walking around with cotton in, in their clothing was up to their eyeballs in slavery. Anybody uh, doing business with a Boston State Street or a New York Wall Street bank was uh, implicated in slavery because these were the financial institutions that were financing the plantations. The industrial revolution that was coming to New England, the first textile mills in the 1820s and 30s, they were spinning slave grown cotton into cloth for the domestic consumption and the export trade. So everybody was involved with slavery, but it's very easy, I think we would all agree, to uh, deceive oneself about that. How many of us, when we go to the big box store and buy a, a $5 t-shirt or a, a $15 pair of sneakers, how many of us ask a lot of questions of ourselves of what the human reality is behind these products that are part of our of our everyday life. So this was the situation in the North. The fugitive slave law made it harder to keep one's eyes closed and to pretend to oneself that one had nothing to do with this because now you had a neighbor who had maybe lived in the, in the neighborhood for months or even years who was hunted down like a, like a cornered animal uh, not, not necessarily by a vigilante mob, but by a, a duly authorized uh, police force deputized uh, with federal authority to drag this person back to uh, the condition from which uh, he had come. Uh, it radicalized the North. In 1854, the famous case of Anthony Burns, a, a, a slave in Boston, uh, where the authorities attempted to return him to his owner. Um, uh, Amos Lawrence, one of the big New England industrialists wrote, we went to bed conservative unionists and woke up stark mad abolitionists, okay? In telling this part of the story in my book, I was, I often had in mind this phrase attributed to Mark Twain. A lot of things are attributed to Mark Twain that he probably never said, uh, but doesn't matter because it's a good phrase anyway. Um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. This is a rhyming story, the story that I'm trying to tell you in short compass this evening. Um, I found myself realizing that in early America and antebellum America, any black person, particularly a young black man, running or even walking fast down the street in Boston after 1850 or in New York was assumed to be a criminal. And the crime of which he was assumed to be guilty was the crime of stealing himself. I don't need to labor the point 
that we still live in a country where our black fellow citizens, particularly young men, uh, live in fear that they will be assumed to be criminals if they walk down the street with the wrong expression on their face or the wrong article of clothing or the wrong pace or whatever it may be. Northern cities, Boston, Rochester, Syracuse, declared themselves essentially sanctuary cities following the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law, just as we have seen in our, in our own time. And there's another parallel that, that came up, struck me uh, toward the end of the writing of the book when, with the advent of the Trump administration. And that is that um, uh, Northern liberals who had for a long time favored federal authority over states' rights, right? Because states' rights in our history is pretty much a synonym for racism. I mean, the great theorist of states' rights was John C. Calhoun. When George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door when I was a kid, said, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, leave uh, Alabama to Alabamians. Uh, he wasn't talking about constitutional principles. He was talking about race. So Northern liberals have always favored uh, federal power over states' rights. And that was the case uh, in the early 19th century as well. Now, all of a sudden, New Englanders became big, states, big fans of states' rights. New Englanders took the position, the federal government should leave, leave Massachusetts to the citizens of Massachusetts. You have no right coming here and interfering with our principles and our laws. And Southerners did the opposite flip, right? They went from being states' rights champions to being enthusiastic about the federal government because now the federal government with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law um, cast itself as the defender of, of, the, of the peculiar institution. So uh, one of the rhymes that I started to hear in the story and most uh, frightening of all, of course, we all hope this won't come to pass, but this is a story about the disintegration of a society that had agreed to disagree and now found that its coherence was uh, challenged in a way that it, 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 could not be, it could not be preserved. I've got an eye on the clock, so I'm, I'm gonna move quickly to a non-conclusion conclusion, so we'll have time for some question and answer. But let me just say that, um, you know, as a literary person, which is fundamentally what my training is and where my, my interest tends to go, um, I, I have come to the view that what literature, what great works of literature tend to be about are people in conflict with themselves. I found myself drawn to figures in telling this story who were in conflict with themselves about how to act under the circumstances that I've been describing. The most conspicuous example of such a person was Lincoln himself, who hated slavery. And if we had another hour together, I think I could persuade any of you who were skeptical of that, that he really did hate slavery. Yet he writes a letter to his friend Joshua Speed in 1855 in reference to the Fugitive Slave Law. And he says, I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and returned to their stripes, but I bite my lip 
and keep quiet. We can leave it at that. There are other figures we could talk about. Daniel Webster, Lemuel Shaw, who happened to be Herman Melville's father-in-law, which is probably how I got interested in the subject in the first place. Um, Shaw was the chief judge of Massachusetts who was personally deeply opposed to slavery, but felt that his constitutional obligation was to uphold this odious law. So I say to my students, uh, when I put on my teaching hat, you know, um, I'm in the confusion business. This is a very confusing story. It is easy to write it as a story about heroes and villains. And there were indeed heroes, most conspicuously the human beings I've mentioned a few times who had the courage to seek freedom despite, despite the mortal risks. And there were villains, the uncomplicated slave owners who saw no issue with the ownership of other human beings. But there were a lot of people who were in that gray zone between the two and who were struggling to weigh their moral revulsion against the institution of slavery and this law that upheld it with their fear that in the absence of this constitutional guarantee, the nation itself would implode, the nation itself would come apart. And there were good arguments, maybe not true arguments, but good arguments that if the South had seceded in 1850, uh, it might have been a victory for slavery. There were people in the South who wanted to expand a slaveholding empire into Central America and uh, into, further into the Southwest. Uh, and that, that the, the best way ultimately to defeat this institution was to hold the nation together, uh, even at the cost of supporting, supporting this law. What was the avenue out of this dilemma, out of this um, moral quandary, if you accept the proposition that maybe for some people that's what it was. The short answer is of course the Civil War, which came 10 years later and which the fugitive slave law and that compromise of 1850 may well have postponed. That's another aspect of the story. There are some historians, and we, you know, this is a what if, problem. We, we don't know what would have happened uh, if there had been no fugitive slave clause in the Constitution. We don't know whether the Southern delegates would have walked away and there would have been no Constitution and there would have been no United States. We do know, as one historian, uh, the late Richard Beeman of University of Pennsylvania puts it nicely, we do know that Northerners were not willing to call their bluff. We don't know what would have happened in 1850 if there had been no fugitive slave law. But it's possible that the nation would have come apart 10 years earlier than it did, before the North and West had forged their alliance, before the industrial strength of the North had reached the point where uh, ultimately it was victorious in a war that took four years and cost nearly a million lives 10 years later. The Civil War solved the problem, not the problem of American race relations, not the problem of what kind of recompense can we imagine for the hundreds of years of bondage that uh, millions of Americans had to endure, but the problem of slavery as a legal institution and the problem of the fugitives, the, the status of the fugitive slave in the nation where because of the post-Civil War amendment, slavery became illegal in all the states. Really quickly in two minutes, I'll, start, I'll end with an anecdote that I think points the way to you know, the resolution of this problem. 
Benjamin Butler, New Englander who was the farthest thing from an abolitionist, had was a Democrat who supported Jefferson Davis at the 1860 convention of the Democratic Party, was uh, put in charge uh, uh, as, uh, as a military officer of, of Fort Monroe, Hampton Roads, Virginia. In May 1861, three slaves turn up at his fort seeking sanctuary. They've been working for their, for their slave master building fortifications for the Confederate troops. And Butler lets them in. A couple of days later, an agent of their owner shows up under a flag of truce and Butler comes out of the fort and they have a comment and they recognize each other because they were both at that convention. They both supported Jefferson Davis. And this guy says to Butler, now my uh, uh, Colonel Mallory, I believe his name was, three of his slaves have escaped to your fort. He'd like them back. And Butler says um, some version of, I don't think so. And this guy pulls himself up in full indignation and says, are you saying, sir, that you will not observe the requirements of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850? And Butler says, well, and he improvised this and was very proud of the improvisation and very sorry that he didn't get a bigger chapter in our history as a result. He says, well, as far as I know, the Commonwealth of Virginia uh, you know, seceded from the Union and considers itself a foreign country. Fugitive Slave Law doesn't apply to foreign countries. So get out of my fort. Now that's a bit of a compression of a more complex story. But the point is the war, the, the military exigency of the war, the fact that General Butler, whatever his convictions were about slavery and ra racial justice, he knew that he didn't want to return those three fugitives uh, to work for the enemy. And that writ large became the story of the destruction of slavery. As the Union Army advanced into the South, it created hundreds of thousands of fugitive slaves. And because of the circumstances of the war, there was less and less will to return those slaves to their putative legal owners. So the war destroyed slavery and the war led to the resolution of the legal problems that I've been talking about as Mr. Lincoln put it so eloquently in his second inaugural address, which if I had more time, I would read to you aloud. But I better stop talking. Um, I've probably said both too much and too little, uh, probably certainly too much and too little, uh, but I'd be happy to take any questions that I believe Robert has volunteered to uh, referee for our remaining few minutes together. So thank you very, very much for your interest and attention. And um, what I should have said at the very beginning of the hour is I wish you and yours all very good health in the uh, weeks and months and years to come. Thank you. Thank you so much for shedding so much light on this very, very confusing series of episodes in our history in this very rich presentation. I'm going to try to skip around. And, uh, we have uh, people tuning in from all over the country. And I'm going to go uh, to a question from one viewer who says, my mother often used the term elastic conscience. Do you believe this was the case with Southerners or were they more nefarious than that? And indeed you're talking about elastic conscience, uh, not just with the South, but also with the North. Elastic conscience, it's a, it's a, good, it's a good phrase. Um, but the elas elastic conscience has been 
at the center of our history from day one. I mean, right, the most conspicuous example that many good historians have been writing about in recent years is Thomas Jefferson himself, who uh, wrote those soaring words in the Declaration of Independence about universal human equality, and who understood the moral indefensibility of slavery, right? He wanted to put into the Declaration a long section about the evils of the slave trade, but the, the committee took it out because it would create political problems with uh, those Southern colonies soon to become states that wanted to continue to import slaves, which was not the case in Virginia because they had more slaves than they needed or wanted. So, so Jefferson somehow put together these two propositions of human equality and the indefensibility of slavery and wrote that elasticity, I think your mother's phrase is really good, uh, into the very creation of, of our nation. Um, you know, this is very hard stuff to write about and I don't pretend that I did it fully successfully, but um, you know, I, I think it's useful to try to take a page from Mr. Lincoln who is such a contrast to the politicians, I'll just put it in a general way of our own time, because he always refused to demonize slave owners. He didn't demonize them even in the darkest days of the war, in the Gettysburg Address or in the, in the second inaugural, remember where he says, it may seem strange that some men will uh, wring their livelihood, I, it's a sin to paraphrase him, uh, from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not lest we be judged. To be born into a slave system, to be unable to imagine how you could support your family, meet your financial responsibilities if you didn't have this immensely valuable asset of human property. That was a, a hard position. Uh, and there are glorious examples of some people who fought their way straight out of it and followed their moral compass. Um, but we wanna ask ourselves, I think, how confident we are that we would have made the right call. Uh, and their counterparts in the North, as I've been talking about, people who hated slavery, but who felt that weighed in the balance, uh, was it really worth the destruction of the nation to see the possible amelioration of the condition of the slave? There was no guarantee that in 1850, if the two sections had gone their separate ways, things would have worked out better for African-Americans. No guarantee at all. So elastic conscience, um, carries the implication that these, you know, it carries the implication of hypocrisy. And, and there were certainly plenty of hypocrites and there are plenty of hypocrites today, but I'm a little wary of, you know, looking at people who faced challenges in the past and wagging our finger at them and saying, we would have done better than you did. We would have known the right thing to do and we would have done it, even if it had been at the radical expense of our own self-interest. That requires heroism. And uh, her heroes are always scarce. 
at any moment in history, and they're certainly scarce right now. So sorry to go on about that, but uh, your mother's phrase provokes a lot of a lot of thoughts. So here's another question. Um, uh, I assume from a, a school teacher um, who says in with a big question mark, the entire country was complicit. So what are history teachers responsibilities in terms of what they need to include in their curricula? Well, it's a great question. I mean, it's easier to answer it in the negative. And I'm sure this is kind of an unnecessary answer for you and your fellow teachers today. Uh, we can't teach history as if slavery was a minor problem or it was a local problem. We have to teach our history, as ta puts it, with a due acknowledgement that there is a real sense in which enslaved people built the United States involuntarily. And that I would I'd go out on a treacherous limb here for a moment. That's the spirit behind the uh, controversial 1619 project of the New York Times. And, and to that extent, I'm very sympathetic to it. That is um, that that date 1619 is a really important date and everybody should know what it means. When you get down to the details of the narrative and you make the argument, well, the American Revolution was fought in order to defend slavery against um, the British emancipators, that's another matter. That's not good history. So we have to try to do good history, that is to be faithful and fair to the facts and the sources, uh, and, and, and at the same time, not to, not to sweep anything under the rug, not to whitewash anything. That's a, that's a really hard challenge because um, it's much easier, and I think we see a, a, a lot of both of these things now, it's much easier to either glory in our history and you know, uh, star-spangled banner all day, every day, or to um, characterize or caricaturize our history as nothing but one sin after another. Um, uh, I think as Jill Lepore has put it, it's you know, either all glory or all gory. Um, it's neither. Human experience is complicated. Our national experience is complicated. Um, everybody was complicit. Uh, everybody living a decent life in this country today has benefited in some indirect way from the subjugation of other people. That's just a fact of human existence. Now, how do you take that into your life and, and act appropriately on it? You know, even if you say, well, I believe in reparations, which in a, in a theoretical way, I actually do. The hard question is, what does that mean? How do we come to terms with the, with the ugly aspects of our history and embrace them and acknowledge them and try to move forward together and collaboratively toward a better future. Those are hard questions. And, you know, I think what you, I know, you know this, you want to try to help your students think about our history in something like that way so that they're not demonizing one another, but they're trying to understand each other's perspectives and uh, acknowledging that uh, there are things in our history to be proud of and there are things in our history to be ashamed of. So one final question, um, because we're running out of time. And 
I think one could say that this movement on behalf of fugitives from slavery in the 1850s was kind of like our first Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and one of our viewers asks, from what we learn from your history of, the, of these episodes, very confusing episodes, but what we learn from these episodes, are th is there encouragement that we can take uh, that can be applied over the next couple of months or she asks, the next four years? Uh, I, I think there is. Um, and I think I actually use that phrase early in the book that, that the story I'm telling here of the biracial movement on behalf of fugitive slaves was in fact the first Black Lives Matter movement in our history because it's, it's impossible to exaggerate how little Black Lives Mattered in the minds of most white people in antebellum America. And alas, it is still the case that black lives matter too little in the minds of too many people in contemporary America. But the encouraging part of the story is that um, we're, in a better, we're in a better place now. Uh, now, it took a war of inconceivable carnage and proportions to liberate ourselves from this institution. Uh, and there were many setbacks after the glorious experiment of reconstruction. There was the retrenchment and return to Jim Crow. Uh, so history is, you know, forward motion and backward motion. Uh, and it continues to be that way. But we're in a better place now. We're more honest about our history than we used to be. We're more conscious of the imperative for racial justice than we used to be. And I do believe that those voices that we hear in the public sphere that are trying to race bait and appeal to the darkest instincts in people, uh, they're on the defensive. They are on the losing side of history in the long run, I'm sure. Now the long run is a long time to wait for people who are on the, on the receiving end of abuse and injustice. Um, but I do feel optimistic about the future of this country. Um, I'll either feel more or less optimistic next week at this time. Uh, but uh, by the way, no matter what happens next week, it's just the beginning of the reckoning that we need to have as a society, and not just on racial matters, but on the very, very difficult matter of, of inequality and, and uh, disproportionate opportunities available for the few as opposed to the many. But I am optimistic and, um, uh, and I hope those of you who choose to read the book, and I hope some of you will, um, will find that it's, um, it has its tragic elements for sure, but it's also a story about a lot of decent people trying to figure out the right thing to do and, um, and rejoicing when, when the institution uh, was a thing of the past. So thank you, thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Robert. I have a lot of affection for the National Humanities Center and I appreciate, appreciate this opportunity to, to talk to your constituents. Thank you so much, Professor Andrew Devanko. The book is The War Before the War. You may also visit nationalhumanitiescenter.org to learn more about the center's work and other opportunities to explore the humanities. Good evening, everyone, and stay safe and stay well. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration.
If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.